0: Welcome to this RF Industry Icon Podcast. I'm Pat Hindle, and it's been a little while since we've done an RF Icon Podcast, so I'm happy to be talking today with Dr. Mao Chung Frank Chang, who is the Wintech Chair in Electrical Engineering and Distinguished Professor at University of California, Los Angeles. Prior to joining UCLA, Dr. Chang was the Assistant Director and Department Manager of the High Speed Electronics Laboratory of Rockwell International Science Center in Thousand Oaks, California is a member of the U.S. National Academy of Engineering, a fellow of the U.S. National Academy of Inventors, and an academic at the Academia Sinica of Taiwan. Professor Chang was recently honored with the 2023 IEEE RSE James Clerk Maxwell Medal at the prestigious IEEE Vic Summit and Honor Ceremony in Atlanta in May. As a part of this distinguished IEEE Medal, Frank has been recognized for his contributions to heterojunction device technology and CMOS system-on-chip realizations with unprecedented reconfigurability and bandwidth. He was additionally honored with the IEEE David Starnoff Award in 2006 for developing and commercializing gas HBT and bifet power amplifiers, which have dominated the smartphone transmitters worldwide production for the past two and a half decades. Welcome Dr. Chang.
1: Thank you, thank you for interviewing me,
0: yeah. So uh, you received your degrees from several universities in Taiwan. Can you tell us about your educational experience and kind of what led up to your path in electronics?
1: Sure, yeah. I started uh, with my undergraduate, uh, B.S. in in physics, actually. That was in the uh, National Taiwan University, the uh, oldest and the most comprehensive university on Taiwan Island. Uh, where I learned the most, the, uh, including the modern physics. And also, I enjoyed very much uh, in uh, building the equipment or instrument uh, for physical the, uh, measurements. For example, I was assigned to build the uh, entire system, including the uh, scintillation counters uh, with a Geiger head the front end to detect the radiation from the X ray. And the X ray, by the way, is also made by students, homemade. So uh, very often I have to struggle with the uh, vacuum of the system. For example, we need a 10 to a minus six tor in order to operate. And often I got into 10 to a minus three, minus four, and I have to work overnight, over days, to just uh, to get the sealed off the uh, the leaks in order to get the X-ray to work. And I was given the four different samples of five actually the transitional elements. I was told. You know, among all the transitional elements, and try to identify which five elements actually are those just based on the X-ray, the copper alpha line that I can detect and then measure the absorption the, uh, coefficient. I was uh, very successfully managed that. In the end, I find a very interesting curve. You know, it kind of curving up that to the number four elements, then it have a cliff down, and uh, that is uh, that only happens once in the within the transition the elements, for example, then I find that was a COBOL, uh the elements uh, in there. So that kind of uh, the experiment, uh, you have to build your own scientific equipment, that taught me a lot. And uh, later, um, without thinking of uh, going uh, abroad, at that time, that was very uh, real because most of my students will well, yeah, they end up in the US right away without wasting their time, but I wasted enough time to go into the next, next uh, national, the uh, Tsinghua University and getting my material science degree. And uh, uh, from there, I learned the uh, solid state thermodynamics. Uh, I knew the um, start to find out uh, how powerful the ser- thermodynamics it could be, not just on the textbook, uh, and read uh, like the philosophy, but actually has some usefulness yeah, in material science. Yeah, uh, So that training also gave me a chance to learn the power methodology in building the rides and the others, uh, the ceramics. So that, that's what I learned. But into the end, I realized the semiconductor is on the horizon uh, to uh, to rise. Yeah. So I moved to the third university right next to the National Tsinghua and eventually next to the Xinzhou Science Park, there was a National Jiao Tong University. Jiao Tong means communication in Chinese. So there I, I was uh, one of the earliest students in Taiwan who were uh, actually getting into the uh, semiconductor of the device physics and the uh, device technology. Uh, I was able to design and uh, fabricate the uh, high-frequency impact impact ionization and the uh, transit time device for microwave applications. Then that's uh, where I learned the microwave device and that impact, not only impact the device, but impact my, my career for the lifetime. Thank you. Those are my different universities, different majors that, that, that made my education very rewarding and interesting.
0: Wow, you had a great background in all types of materials uh, leading to electronics. Yeah. And yeah. so I think then you came to the U.S. and you were a principal investigator at Rockwell in leading DARPA's ultra high speed ADC and DAC development for direct yeah. conversion transceivers and digital uh, radar systems. Can, can you tell us about those programs and their focus? Sure.
1: Uh, actually, that was inspired by the, prof- the professor Herb Cromer. If you uh, understand, the Cromer uh, was the Nobel Physics uh, laureate uh, in the year two thousand. Yeah, he actually had this idea to use a uh, different material uh, to form the junctions. One is we call the wider band gap uh, material. Uh, and the other side is a is a narrow band. So it happened to be uh, uh, in 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 our case is aluminum gallium arsenide as a white band material, and the gallium arsenide is a a little bit narrow band. Yeah. So it was 1979 uh, after Cromer invented or uh, you know he actually patented his idea. After forty some years, he declared on the proceeding of the IEEE stated that. Uh, this is the time to grow such a heterojunction device uh, because the molecular beam epitaxy, uh, the the particular material goals, the methodology will make that to happen. So he encouraged DARPA to invest on in this area. So Rockwell Science Center, we are very close to UC Santa Barbara, so we invited him as our technical consultant, and we started to getting into the heterojunction business. Yeah. So after that, uh, probably since 1979 until almost, I I should say, uh, uh, early 1990, DARPA has invested more than 150 million U.S. dollars into this technology for gallium arsenide. And we started uh, uh, from the material growth, for example, using Tsikorsky, Methodology to grow the pool, the four-inch wafers. Actually, we do that, and we we know how to how to grow the material, how to cut it, and we know how to uh, build the heterojunction device to grow by MBE by layers. Uh, on top of that, uh, for some of the high-speed uh, integrated circuit. So all the way from the boom materials, all the way to the integrated circuit, all done by uh, the research group I belong to. Yeah, and the the. The research group was started by uh, Dr. Peter Asbeck. I don't know if you know him. He's very famous in our field. And he ended up in the San Diego UCSD as uh, as a professor, now retired recently. So he was the first one. And the one night, the two of us was together in uh, in processing or washing our wafers. So we get to know each other. And I was invited by him to join him uh, to work on this. And I started uh, uh, my career into heterojunction because of that, and then later I was uh, subsequently uh, demonstrated the, uh, the integrated circuits. So we built the integrated circuits, uh, not only HBT but the BiFET. BiFET is the planar planar HBT plus the planar FET. Field effect transistor. I made the two of them on one wafer with the same device layer structure. That's the next question I think you're gonna ask me. What is the layout? What is the vertical topology of the structure? We made the device not only good for high performance, high frequency, the operation, but the high breakdown voltage. So initially we were asked the, because the DARPA, their their highest interest is to build the EW, electronic weapon you know, for the, the uh, ages, for example, the face array, the uh, antennas, for example. They need the A2Ds, the D2As uh, for digital receivers. Uh, that was in your question, yeah. So that was uh, the purpose. So we were the first one to actually accomplish so-called the sampling speed over one gigahertz. We demonstrated the first uh, one giga sample per second, 12-bit uh, D2A digital to analog converter and uh, accomplished you know one to to two gigahertz sampling, okay, but the a to ten bits uh, a to d analog to digital converter, those uh, devices that actually they prevail until today. they're still you know, that they, you know heavily uh, utilized by many, many of the systems you know that equipped into into the various battleships and and others, uh, yeah, very widely. Yeah, very widely known for that. So I like the old style, you know, government, they have a mind to build the revolutionary technology, you know, and consistently for many years, more than one decade, yeah, the huge investment, but also the huge return. In the end, um other than the A2D D2S we built for DARPA, we we're also invited by that time by a new company called Qualcomm in San Diego. They're building the first generation CDMA phones at that time. In order to make the field test very successful in Hutchinson, Hong Kong, and in South Korea, they need the super efficient, you know, and a highly linear the, the power amplifier. Yeah, so Professor, the um, at that time, at UCSD, Professor, also the co-founder of the uh, uh, Qualcomm came to us, it was a Jack uh, Irvine. Yeah, yeah, um, he uh, he come to us uh, and they said, can you guys build the six power amplifier within two months? So we actually handmade a six power amplifier for them. And they used that for Hutchinson and uh, in the first, a test. It was uh, successful. So that started the new era for the uh, CDMA phone. So so that was uh, in the history. And after that, because the CDMA started to grow up and our HBT also got grown into the cell phone. So right now, if uh, you are using any of the smartphones, so you open that, all the transmitter is uh, based on the technology we developed. and yeah, the, that's...
0: Uh, yeah. that's so impressive that you you know grew your own pools and made your own wafers and then did the ics um right. so was that when you you moved to ucla to develop the hbt and yeah. bifet and that's when you worked with qualcomm that's right well uh, we i i done the job so we uh also i was uh, asked to
1: transfer the technology to production in, in order to meet the uh, jacob the Irvine's needs so we provide that and they're very successful. Then the company decided to build a production line in Newbury Park, just to build them. In the past two and a half decades, more than 100 billion power amplifier has been built by the technology, and the U.S. was able to
0: dominate on this technology. And, um, and the production, the production was done at Connexin, which is now part of Skyline. Well, Group. in, in the
1: part of the main site, but they did flow over a little bit to Taiwan. I mean, one of the, the at that time, the guy who worked with me to transfer the technology, he quit the company. He said he need to, he wanted to go back to Taiwan. Then at that time, the company said, okay, you can go back, but you work for us. <laughs> you your company, and we
0: overflow our value to you. Yeah, And what were the challenges in transferring it to production?
1: Oh, the biggest thing is the reliability. We were able to identify the main the degradation The mechanism is a recombination, the electron hole recombination in the emitter-base junction. So we need to utilize a special technique to passivate the emitter-base junction. We call the a thin latch using the particular uh, the technique we can avoid the carrier flowing into the emitter-based junction, which is the aluminum gamma line and the gallium interface. So that kills uh, the problem. So we made our customer the, uh, yeah, Urban yeah, Jacob the extremely happy and uh, they 100% adopted that and the phone, then all
0: cell phones adopted, yeah, because they don't have any other choice, yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's the most efficient amplifier that you can use for that application. Mm-hmm. So as part of your distinguished IEEE medal, you are recognized for your contributions to heterojunction device technology and CMOS system-on-chip realizations with unprecedented reconfigurability and bandwidth. And you are the inventor of the multi-band reconfigurable RF interconnects for chip multiprocessor, intercore communications, and interchip CPU to memory communications, that's a mouthful. So can you tell us about that technology and its application? Oh, yes. Yeah, when I look
1: at the uh, interconnect, you know, from die to die or from chip to chip, uh, because of my RF background, you know, high-frequency background, I look at that and uh, I say, this is a little bit strange. We only push the uh, uh, the interconnect to carry digital signals with a very broadband. From DC all the way to uh, three gigahertz, right? We cannot increase it because uh, the heat problem, heat dissipation problem. But we also wanted uh, to push it for uh, different uh, inter pins and many others. Uh, but pin and the pins between the logic and memory they are not compatible because the logic of the the circuits are very dense, memory is less. Uh, most of the time the memory also uh, only have a very limited number of pins, and your logic you have too many pins. How do you talk to to each other? Okay, then Samsung say, oh, we have a called a YIO. I increase the number of the pins, increase so, so many of them to the extent they started to affect the, the size and the cost. Then I say, we can easily solve the problem by sharing limited the number of the pins or unscalable number of pins by using the different frequencies. Each of the pins physically, I can use a, a multiple carrier, modulate the digital signal, right? For example, I can use a DC as a band, I can use a three gigahertz as a band, I can use a six gigahertz as a band, I can use a nine gigahertz as a band, and I can use a 12 gigahertz. So I can, in principle, I can reduce the number of pins by number of carriers. I use the four channels. I suddenly, I reduce the, the number of pins by a factor of four, right? So that, with that in mind, I started to build uh, this, uh, we call the multi-band uh, interconnect. And then later it was, uh, was funded by SRC, by NSF, and by DAPA. So right now, especially uh, for the uh, TSV, you know, through the silicon the vias, I think that because those are six micron, the, the pillars, right, you know? It's uh, not scalable, not scalable because of the thermal requirement. I think that they will find that this kind of multi band is more and more uh, important. On the other hand, if you have a multi core, if you increase the number of cores in the CPUs or GPUs to to increase, then uh, sometimes you'd like to have a network on the chip so you can do the broadcast, you know. To inform all the chips at the same time, you use the basement. Come on, it's not possible. You're going to intrude with each other. Why not? You know, with with the loop and the using carrier, you just send it just like a we listen to the radios through the broadcasting. So that's another reason to use the microwave modulated the uh, interconnect. For those, I I, I just. Uh, you know, patent all kinds of possibilities and as uh, a span of a company and that company um, was eventually sold to, to Molex, to the big interconnect company. And uh, uh, then um, I think uh, for many industrial applications uh, like uh, for the phones, you know, the full, full phone, you know, when you open the phone, you double the size, but actually, uh, you know, you. you Although you don't see it, there is a wireless interconnect in the back there to send the information back and forth. And for the big buildings, the panel on the building, or uh, the world movies, those that then you can use, uh, it's such a technology. So you can do it at the, you know, every the square, uh, you know, it's just a piece by piece, you can build that. You don't need to do an entire piece, but they, they connected with the wireless interconnect, which you cannot see. The multi-band, high-frequency the modulated,
0: uh, the panel, the big panel. Very interesting. And uh, you were the first to demonstrate CMOS active passive imagers at millimeter wave frequencies. Can you tell us about that work?
1: Yeah, in terms of the the imager, uh, we started uh, uh, interested in that because of there is a security needs. Uh, we need to detect uh, something is a uh, it is conceived, you know, it is, you cannot see it, for example, underneath your closing or other things uh, uh, that like you, you, you try to detect. And the main middle wave is uh, the pa- perfect frequency uh, to probe that kind of things. So started that we, we did the active, we using the classical, the uh, Armstrong invented, we call the regenerative receivers. Uh, that was a perfect, uh, with with high detectivity. Uh, to detect the frequency that we send it out because we know what's the exact frequency then we can aim for that so we kind of uh, uh, decoded that with some kind of because we need the quenching circuit once it's reached to a certain the oscillation point then we uh, can detect the time so we call the time encoded there. Yeah. that was a very successful we did uh, a, a few of them the Probably the first one is uh, one hundred eighty-three gigahertz. Then later we did the four hundred ninety-five gigahertz. At that time, that was the high, highest frequency you can do. Then we noticed that there is a, one problem. If you have a metal parts, uh, something like a guns and others, um, you know, even you can see it uh, under the uh, closes. But if that gun tilted uh, with high angle, then that caused the signal, the reflection signal. The signal reflected to a different direction. You can get the 100 dB loss uh, uh, right there, you know, and it makes things hard to be uh, detectable. So, because of that, then we start to be interested in actually doing passive kind of imaging. What is a passive imaging? I don't shine any beam on you, but because your body heat, you know, due to the black body radiation. Then we can detect around 100 gigahertz, I can detect your body heat because it was blocked by the metal. So no matter which direction you go, because that's a uh, unanimous, yeah, everywhere, only directional, right? So so the that's uh, made us uh, interested in doing the passive image. We were also the first one to demonstrate the passive image of that. So all do the things I would eventually do tri-colors you know, we do three frequencies uh, with the uh, intermodulated regenerator receivers. That I've never done before. So that was a lot of fun there. Even read us eventually
0: we do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you see those uh, millimeter wave imagers are kind of taking over the security scanning from X rays. Mm-hmm. So now in so. the airport. Yeah.
1: So yeah. yeah. So frequently used.
0: So you uh, also pioneered the development of self healing 57 to 64 gigahertz radio on trip. I think it was. DARPA's Helix program, mm-hmm. with embedded sensors, actuators, and self-diagnosis curing capabilities for enhanced performance yield, and this is to counter the process variations and aging effects. You know, mm-hmm. what applications does this have, and, you know, what is this technology about? For example, if we have
1: this millimeter wave radios in the satellite, if we started to age all because of some Uh, PVT, you know, the variation effects for the temperatures the thresholds and other, you know, uh, occasions, it starts to degrade performance. If we need the person on the ground to send a command uh, to the radio to fix it, that will take time. And it take time to do a diagnosis as well. Why not to build a smart radio? They can do a diagnosis themselves then they find they're sick right and they have their own the ways to heal themselves would that be nice so that was the idea by the uh, by the dapa at that time they're interested in doing such things uh, in the remote uh, systems that they can detect their own problem and fix their own problem yeah when we started we saw that this is a kind of crazy idea (laughs) yeah but uh, then we carefully because it got the, the radio it has its own transmitter it got its own receiver so actually you can pump the signal for your transmitter um you can you can actually fit that with some attenuations into your receiver and detect you know uh the, some of the imbalance between the IQ or some of the harmonics or some other things then actually you can change the you can tune the bias, of the the transmitter and uh, have them fix it. That is totally possible. So so we started to do that and start with some the the detectors, the sensors, the power, and we call the envelope the detector to to detect what's coming out of the the power amplifier, the signal. Yeah. Uh, Are they strong enough? Are they too weak? Uh, Are they linear enough? Uh, Or do they have any 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 of the imbalance problems? Yeah. And the feed into its own receiver. Um, then we can adjust the the imbalance, the magnitude, the offset, the, all that to make it balance and work. So with that, we actually demonstrate this a uh, 50 uh, 57 to 60, 64 gigahertz. Actually, the entire radio, make the performance yield under different the temperature DAPA have the specific conditions for testing. And we demonstrated to the Navy people outside in UCRA and at the top of uh, the manager sitting on there to watch, yeah. you know, to watch the performance of the radio. On um, purposely, we make the radio performance very bad initially and to push the bottom and to see the radio itself actually heal the problem, by right? Just by itself. Yeah, without oh. the, the intervention.
0: Yeah, That's very impressive. I, very interesting. So did you have to kind of predict what would go wrong so that you could add, you know, tuning and impedance changes and things like that to the circuit so it had that, you know, adjustability?
1: Yeah, because we have a so-called self-heating controller uh, in the basement. Once we detect, uh, then we go through the uh, parameter estimator to estimate the, to see what what can be wrong. Then we kind of feed into the bias control, or uh, we call the cautious control in, in in the control theory. And then we do that uh, step by step. We, we, we can get that fixed. Yeah. So That's in front cool. of customers' eyes, <laughs> and and uh, under the morning uh, the uh, navy monitors, you know, they came from San Diego to actually look at the <laughs> back <laughs> from back. <our> See, <magazine. laughs> you did not you did not do anything yourself, but the that device, uh, the radio, actually doing for for itself.
0: Yeah, yeah, you have to see it to believe it. To see it to believe, and uh, they do believe it in the end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, you also worked on ultra-low phase noise VCOs with your uh, invented digitally controlled artificial dielectric embedded in CMOS technologies, and you varied its transmission line permittivity in real time up to twenty x for realizing reconfigurable multi-band mode radios in the sub-millimeter wave frequency <laughs> bands. Uh, can you explain exactly how that works?
1: Sure. The artificial dielectric was invented in the Bell lab, yeah, probably 45, 50 years ago. At that time, they used the, uh, such a, we call the slow wave, and the periodical, the obstacle, uh, the elements, the metal elements, in order to build the lens for microwave communication, for antenna applications. But because it's hard to implement in the precise locations of that, To make it, uh, you know, theoretical. So actually later it it failed to to commercialize. So when I uh, read in the textbook about that, that was in the classical dynamics, uh, you know, the old textbook is the entire chapter to describe that. And I find there is no application of that. (laughs) But when I started to work on the CMOS, I look at that, I say to myself, oh my goodness, Because we have the precise allocation by optical lithography in IC, and I have a metal interconnect down there, I can precisely, you know, yeah, align and uh, duplicate and allocate all the the metal pieces. I can I can basically I can synthesize the ceramics uh, (laughs) with with the metal interconnects of CMOS. That that's what it, it, it it is equivalent to. Yeah. So, so I say let's do it. yeah so what we did is uh, do a uh, the transmission uh, the uh, differential transmission lines on the wafer. but under the two metal transmission lines, you know we actually put the CMOS under these the, put the, the metal strip you know uh, in in perpendicular to the transmission directions, but uh, there is a gap. In between the these metal strips, uh, along the we call the virtual ground because there's a differential transmission like right? There's a virtual ground right in the middle. Yeah, we split it there, but we either engage or disengage with uh, switches, similar switches there. In that, then I can change the dielectric constant because uh, I I just simply build the ceramics. I, you know, and I can change the dielectric constant because. The each of these switches, I can either leave them all on or all off, or you know the uh, in this, uh, the uh, thermometer code, um, you know, I can gradually change one on or off. In that, I I change the speed of the light, you know, and I modify the dielectric constant. With that, then I think uh, number one, when I make it all on, I can reduce the size. If I needed this. Long the uh, transmission line right now because uh, the higher dielectric constant, I can make it uh, eight times shorter in one case. Yeah, then I can turn the on and off to modulate the dielectric constant. Wow, this is how powerful. Yeah, never before had such a device that people can do that. So I use that to replace the varactor on the resonator and they got an extremely good phase noise out of the oscillator. And later I use that to do what I call the direct frequency modulator. I don't need the d or that at the millimeter wave. At the 300 gigahertz, I can directly modulate that and make it uh, in, uh, the efficient in communication by building high level, the modulation index like a constellations, like a 1024 quant, that kind of a modulation. Uh, it's, we demonstrate all the possibility. Uh, and it could be reconfigurable. So not only the bandwidth, but the, also the reconfigurability, both are the unprecedented.
0: Wow. The, yeah, yeah. And uh, another area, which I think you kind of covered a little bit, uh, you realize the first CMOS frequency synthesizer for terahertz operation with a PLL at 560 gigahertz mm-hmm. and device the first tricolor CMOS active imager at 180 to 500 gigahertz based on time encoding. Right digital regenerative receiver and the first three-dimensional SAR imaging radar with a sub-millimeter range resolution at 144 gigahertz. That's a very high frequency stuff. Can you tell us about that one? Well, all
1: that you need a PLL. You need a phase-lock loop. So first, we build the phase-lock loop at about 560 gigahertz. One reason for that is to support NASA's experiment because they want to find the water on the Mars. They need a frequency synthesizer at around five hundred thirty gigahertz to detect the water, so they need a frequency synthesizer in that range. So that's why we we think that because of the there is a real need, so we build it first, and we can divide the frequency to make it working at the low frequencies. After that, for various applications, yeah, including the imaging and the others, yeah. So in order to to do that, then die is the most powerful uh, element out there. We have a wide uh, tunable range, uh, like uh, 40 gigahertz uh, tuning uh, range, because we have a, we call the a DICAT, yeah, digital controlled artificial dielectric. Without that, it's not just not possible.
0: And so you started uh, several companies in the US and Taiwan. Can tell yeah. us about those and how they evolved? Well, the two companies are uh, more. Uh, significant. one is
1: uh, actually, uh, we eventually because the overflow of the Rockwell line, uh, later called the SkyWorks line, they need help, um, uh, from the outside the country when the production value is uh, is overflowing too too much need. <laughs> Just like uh, in the last twenty years, they don't want to expand their U.S. manufacturing lines uh, overly. Yeah, they just want to make it just right to, to keep the key technology. But when the volume increased too much, they wanted that to be produced somewhere like that in Taiwan as their, their side production. Yeah. So one of the uh, the managers created Rockwell and returned to Taiwan. They started to build the a, a foundry over there to support the activity. And uh, such a foundry, one of them uh, called the, the wing Semiconductor. Oh, and, yeah. the that yeah, and the semiconductor was IPO. yeah, and very successfully enjoyed the very high the uh, production rate right now, yeah. Probably they, I think they have uh, probably uh, more than eighty thousand wafers uh, per year, uh, probably even higher than that right now, yeah. But it's it's worth the biggest foundry, uh, but uh, it started to support the. Uh, uh skyworks that it end up is also making production for Broadcom. yeah yeah so the two biggest uh, the hbt the vendor one is uh skyworks solutions out of the my original rockwell team and also the uh, Brocon. and also out of my original rockwell team there's the engineer uh the yeah dr park yeah he was a designer pa designer he went back initially to National Seoul University as a faculty. Then eventually got invited back by, uh, by the Broadcom uh, to, uh, to be the head of that their their division uh, their division head. Yeah, to work on. So these two companies are, are probably eighty percent of the worldwide market right now.
0: Yeah. And so RFMD also adopted that, which is now Corvo. Is, did they use the same configuration? Uh, they use
1: the same boundary. That's right. So basically I, I build the boundary for all. <laughs> yeah. And the, the other company I feel proud of is a, a company called the Neural K-N-E-R-O-N. Um if you just read the news yesterday, they just raised 40 47 million US dollars to build the edge. AI uh, transformer, yeah, for various applications in AI, especially for ADAS applications. That was uh, three of my students, and plus uh, another student from uh, Professor Rick Wessel's group at UCRA. So these are UCRA students, they bundled together, went to San Diego. So, So far they raised 170 million US dollars, yeah. And right now grew up to maybe 250 engineers, yeah. So they're going pretty strong. I'm pretty happy for them. Yeah. For the uh, young excellent. guys. Yeah. They're uh, really excellent. Yeah. They're now in the challenging the NVIDIA in this area. Yes. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> yeah.
0: And so finally, I wanted to end up, you know, with the last question about, you know, what are some of the most exciting areas of research in the wireless technology that you think will infect, you know, the future systems? Yeah. I think the... Uh, the
1: scaling most important in engineering uh, in advancing the 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 state of the art. Yeah, in the semiconductor, of course, is the feature size the scaling, which is about ten to the 8th from you know ten to the minus three to ten to the minus nine today. You know, um, this is about in that range. But for the information scaling, we're about the same. We're from the hundred kilohertz. Initially, by the first radio, you know now we end up with 300 gigahertz. So we are about the 10 to the 7, 10 to the 8 also. So it's more slow for the information scaling, I I, I should call. But we should not stop at the uh, uh, sub millimeter wave or terahertz. We should continue to advance all the way to optics, for example, to 400, 800 terahertz. We have a long way to go. <laughs> <laughs> The micro engineers, your career is almost infinite yes. <laughs> in terms of years. Okay, for you to pursue there. So don't feel too frustrated in the in the confined right now. But we do need a good uh, super device right now. I would say there's a transit time limited transit time limited be, because if you have a drain and a source, right, and your carrier, which is uh, most time the electron, sometimes is a hose, the transit from the uh, the uh, source and the drain will take so much time. Even you are down to a five nanometer, uh, the cutoff frequency, we call that F sub T or F max or maximum oscillation frequency, is about 400 gigahertz, that's it. Yeah, now go beyond that, uh, go beyond that, then you have to learn something from me, using something non-linear effect you know, to, to push for the uh, uh, you can triple push the using Cobis or other means to do that. But basically, we will run out of steam after that, you know, at the terahertz, I would say, you know. Uh, so, but on the other hand, gap limited device is an optical device. We do need a transition from the uh, transit time limit to gap limited device. Okay, how do we do that? What well, my proposal, I give a talk on that is uh, I suggest to replace the CMOS drain by the uh, gallium nitride by nitride nitride is a compound and you can build a photonic device on top of that drain and happen to be gallium nitride if you grow in the 111 orientation of the silicon substrate is a lattice matched with aluminum uh, gallium arsenide. and uh, after the, uh, the grow for many many layers they merge it together they will have a non-polar gallium nitride on top of that. And you can build a photonic device right there on the cbon string if you can replace the silicon uh, by the gallium nitride. And this device will give you bandgap limited, you know, the optical emitters and the receivers. And with that, you can build a multicolor only with a nitride base, but the, you change the the content of the Indian. that will bring you to cover all the way from infrared to to the ultraviolet. You know, that will be that will be the future life for our microwave engineers. And <laughs> good luck to all. <laughs> yeah. awesome, wonderful future. Yeah.
0: yeah, I look forward to that device being realized soon.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you. We all hope. Yeah, I think that I would. I would I would would the uh, most of my time in, in pursuing that.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you very much for talking with me thank today, you. Dr. Chang. Yeah. It's been a delight. Um, you have a lifelong journey. You've covered so many technologies. I'm just blown away by the number of different thank technologies you. you've worked with. And you're truly an RF icon. And to our listeners, you can find more podcasts at podcast.microwavejournal.com. Thanks for listening. Thank